Today's reading is from Isaiah 45, verse 1 to 25. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled, I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabians, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, surely God is with you and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are a God who has been hiding himself the God and Saviour of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. For this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in the land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives, from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to God who cannot save. Declare what is to be, present it, let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? 
Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me. A righteous God and a saviour, there is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will save me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord, and he will make their boast in him. This is the word of God. Uh, morning, everyone. If we've not met, uh, my name's Matt Fuller. That is to do with that, not Isaiah. Let's think about Isaiah, Isaiah 45. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Cyrus, Israel, Kash, these things all, all seem a little bit distant from us, uh, and yet very quickly we'll discover here, here are issues very close to our own lives. Help us rightly understand truths from centuries ago. Let us rightly hear you speak them to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just ask about one verse, can I? What do you make of chapter 45 and verse 7, where the Lord says, I form the light and create darkness, I bring prosperity and create disaster, I do all these things. Light and darkness, I the totality, prosperity, disaster, I create them all. It's in the beginning God created. I create, bara, I create all of them. I create disaster, says the Lord. War in Ukraine, yeah. An earthquake in Syria, yeah. Things that go wrong in your life? Yeah. How do you feel about that? It's quite a, it's quite a truth, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's red. When you sing, there isn't a day you have not planned, or there isn't a day you do not rain. I'm not the only one who struggles, right, <laughs> to sing that and thinks, golly, I know that's true, but it's been a few bad days along the way. What do you make of it? Chapter 45 and verse seven. Now, tangent, <laughs> there are a lot of other things you'd want to say about how disasters happen, a man's responsibility for the things that go wrong, but the, the stress here and in this block of Isaiah is God is saying, look, when the disasters happen, the world is not out of control. It's not that I'm trying to arm wrestle to the ground and at the moment I'm just losing. It's not God is saying, look, I've gone 3-0 down here, but I'll probably get it back eventually. Just stick with me. I know it's looking a bit grim. He says, it's all in my control. Disaster as well as success. 
I know. I permitted it. I achieved good through it. Don't give up. (laughs) Don't stop trusting me. That's the point. Chapter 45 and verse 7, it it may make us gulp. I'd be surprised if when you think about it, it doesn't make you gulp. But fundamentally, it's here to be reassuring. The world is not out of control. There isn't a day he hasn't planned. And there isn't a day he doesn't reign. And they may be very strange to you and me. But he is using them to achieve his purposes. If you're joining us uh, today, oh, hello, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a strong verse, isn't it? But uh, this, we're in this section for two months, um, uh, chapter 40 to 48 of Isaiah. It's our sort of fourth look at the book of Isaiah, and next spring we'll do chunk five, and then finally we'll do chunk six in, um, uh, in 2025. That's the plan, who knows? Um, but um, that's, that's the plan. But I thought there was, there was a couple of months in Isaiah, 40 to 48, and, and the setting in this block is that the nation of Israel has been defeated, utterly broken in war. They're the elite of society, and lots of the young people have been taken off into captivity and uh, uh, absorbed, assimilated into, into another nation. So you may read of uh, young Ukrainian children being taken and housed with Russian families and brought up as Russians, and they lose their family, and they lose their place of birth, and they lose their identity and who they are. That, that is the situation we're talking about on a grand scale in the 6th century we are now, B.C. So question for them. How can we trust God when life looks like this? When disaster has struck. And the main answer throughout the section really here is, you can trust me because, well, particularly in verses 40 to 40, chapters 40 to 48, I control everything. <laughs> I control the future. I've predicted the future. And when you see it fulfilled, then, then if not now, you can trust, can't you? And so as I've scribbled down, it's worth remembering these, these chapters where we are, that this is written by Isaiah in around 700 B.C., He is now dead. It's written to Israel that goes into exile, completely broken, smashed, destroyed by the Babylonians, 586 BC, you know, 120 years later. And it's about an event, this Cyrus will come to him, who's going to conquer the world, to them, known world, in about 538 BC. Do you... Risk of laboring the points. Do you just see those dates? What is written here, Isaiah wrote it in 700 BC to a people in about 586 BC about something that's going to happen 40 odd years later. And there's quite a lot of detail. It says, this is what's going to happen. When you see it happen, you will trust me, won't you? (laughs) Because I've told you years in advance. In fact, not just you, Israel. Other nations will look on and go, Oh, look, God said this would happen. He's in charge of the future. He's told us the future. No one else does that. So trust him is the big idea. And chapter 45, I guess the the, the peculiar stress of this chapter is that this salvation, God's plan, it, it comes in surprising 
ways. So the Lord says, I bring prosperity and I bring disaster. It's quite surprising how I work, but keep trusting me. Keep trusting me. We'll work through it like this. I'll save you in a shocking way, says the Lord, but don't you quarrel with me because every knee will eventually bow. Okay, that's the sort of flow as we work through it. I'll save you in a shocking way, so don't you quarrel with me, uh, for every knee will eventually bow. First, in chapter 44, verse 24 to 45, 8, I'll save you in a shocking way. Now, we didn't have the end of chapter 44 read um, from verses 24 to 28. Uh, I won't go through it all now. It's one long sentence. And actually, in Hebrew writing, it's quite a long, this is a long sentence, right? You, they, they're quite good on their grammar. Uh, it's not like a three-year-old who has no full stops or anything. You know, the, uh, they're quite good. Um, so this is a very long sentence. But the point is it, where it culminates. So uh, very quickly, this is what the Lord says, verse 24. Verse 24, I'm the Lord, I'm, I'm the maker of all things. I, I stretch out the heavens. I spread out the earth by myself. Yes, I do all those things. Um, verse 24, I, I carry out the words of what the prophets have said. I do all these things, I control everything, but the climax is meant to be verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd. Pause. (laughs) Cyrus. He's been referred to earlier in this section, back in chapter 41, one will come from the north. Uh, If you get a bit confused about these different nations and things, Israel, smashed by Babylon, By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept. Cyrus comes from Persia and conquers the Babylonians and conquers everyone. Cyrus. And in 539, he smashes the Babylonians. 538, he says to Israel, you can go home if you want. Who are you lot? Yeah, whatever, go away. Uh, I'm not interested in you. Uh, Just go back to Jerusalem and your city and rebuild it. You want a temple? Have a temple, I don't mind. Uh, Is Cyrus. And so here, God is predicting this as years, decades in advance. Cyrus, he's my shepherd, and he'll accomplish all that I please. He'll say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and the temple, let its foundations be laid. Into chapter 45 and verse 1, this is what the Lord says to his anointed to Cyrus. Anointed, Messiah. And if you're an Israelite, you're there thinking, hold on a minute, um, Lord, uh, this is probably sounding good. Not sure about the disaster, but there's some but Jerusalem rebuilt. We like that. New temple. We like that. Cyrus doesn't sound very uh, Israelite. Sounds a bit of a pagan name. And so there's this pagan king coming, and he's your shepherd and your anointed. Uh, that's David. King David, the, you know, our great king, he was the shepherd and anointed one, and that title goes to his descendants. Would you, not a foreigner, Lord. It'll be a surprising announcement by the government uh, tomorrow. That won't surprise you. Uh, but um, actually, uh, there's going to be um, coronation on the 6th of May, but we've changed our minds. Not going to be uh, King Charles. 
Uh, there's a guy we've found in Croatia, uh, uh, Peter Livonovskovich, and, um, and um, sorry, uh, just Croatian, Croatian names. Uh, I love Croatia, but the, the name's a bit tricky for this idiot. Um, and we're going to crown him as king. Peter, Peter from uh, Croatia. And you think, it's not how it works, is it? Um, we get the guy, with the, you know, the 74-year-old old guy. He's been waiting for years, hasn't he? He's waited ages. It's him, isn't it? You wouldn't get this guy. Well, there's a bit of that here, but just more. Because he's, Lord, he's not one of us. You can't have a Messiah just from another country rebuilding Jerusalem. It makes no sense. But that's what, he's the, that's what they're told. Now, Lord, the last time like, we were conquered by a people, last time we were in this sort of exile situation, last time we were in Egypt and you gave us Moses and like plagues on our enemies and parting the Red Sea and manna from heaven and that stuff. Can we have that stuff? No. I'm using a pagan king who will defeat your enemies and then you can trickle back sort of with your tail between your legs. Oh. Well, that's not what we would have done. No, it isn't. But you're not in charge. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. Chapter 45, verses 1 to 8, the Lord is addressing Cyrus. He's not born, doesn't exist. He's not going to be on the sea for another 150 years. But he's written down for Cyrus. And it's what is obvious here, Cyrus is just an instrument, just a tool so um, he says to Cyrus, well, why is God going to use Cyrus? Well, a lot's here, but verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. Cyrus is not a believer, but I'm using you, Cyrus, for the sake of my people. Verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Cyrus, I'll strengthen you, though you don't acknowledge me. You're just an instrument in my hands. So Israelites don't get excited by Cyrus. There's no one wearing t-shirts, Yahweh is my God, Cyrus is my president, because they know he's just an instrument. He doesn't even know the Lord. You imagine, this would be a little bit surreal, forgive me, I know. But imagine you were uh, you, you, walking past a, a, a snooker table and there's someone's got a break of 147, you know, the maximum. And uh, they sit down and the, the, the queue, they rest against the table. And all of a sudden you hear a voice coming from the queue. You know, the stick. It says, yeah, I'm pretty good at snooker. Wait, what? Yeah, I just potted 15 red balls and... A yellow and a green and a brown, or for the colorblind, 17 red bulls and, 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 and a yellow, and, and then the whatever, the, the blue and the pink. And, and the, yeah, I did that. You're a stick. And you're a talking stick. I mean, that's, you know, less cheese at late at night. But um, what's going on? In, but you're just a stick. You're just a tool. How does it happen? Because you're in someone's hands. Cyrus, you're just a stick. You're just a tool in the Lord's hands to achieve this. So this staggering verse, verse 7, why does it appear here? Because the Israelites are saying, our lives are disastrous. And God says, yes, and I will save you. Well, like that, that's weird. 
that's my way. I've chosen to save you like that. And what will happen is verse 8. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. I'm going to save you. It's not the way you'll expect. But it'll achieve everything you want. I'll save you in a shocking way. So, so don't quarrel with me is uh, verses 9 to 13. Let's read some of these verses. Let's read this section. Verses 9 to 13. Woe, woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds, fragments of clay pot, among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does the, your work say the potter has no hands? Do you see, the Israelites are saying, hold on a minute, God, that's not right. Your plan is not a good one. We don't like what you're going to do. You've just sort of you've got it all wrong here, Lord. And you see, God is pretty sarcastic here, the Lord. It's a bit like a pot saying to its maker, you've got no hands. You've got no hands. To which the maker says, well, how did you come to be then? I didn't make you with my mouth. You know, the, um, what do you... And hand, Mr. Pot, I don't see any hands on you, but let's not get, let's not, that seems a bit petty. But you've got no hands. Or verse, six, verse 10, Woe to the one who says to his father, What have you begotten? Or to a mother, What have you brought to birth? I mean, that's just a bit odd. This is a bit foolish if a, if a kid says to mum and dad, Hey, dad, what children have you ever had? Mum, who have you ever given birth to? In a sort of natural scheme of things. Well, uh, that seems like a slightly odd question. You. You're, you're like, hello? You. No. You, you, what, you, what have you... It's a stupid question. Like a pot saying, pot has got no hands. You've come from somewhere. Or verse 11 then, look, enough of the metaphors... This is what the Lord, of, Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children? Do you give me orders about the work of my hands? I tell you what, believers, I'm not forming a committee here. I'm not saying, well, yes, I know I'm the creator of everything and, I, and the ruler of everything, but, um, you know, let's just have a committee Let's get together every Monday night and make decisions on how to run the world. And, you know, which of you pots would like, thinks they've got wisdom to offer? I'm not, when I'm having a committee meeting, I'm the Lord. I made everything. I rule everything. Let all things their creator bless and worship him in humbleness. You're just pots, guys. Made by a creator is what he's saying. So verse 12, it's I that made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled the starry hosts. Why again is he telling us here, this here? Because verse 13, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I'll make his way straight. Cyrus will rebuild my city of Jerusalem. Cyrus will set you all free. Not because I'm paying him or anything like that. He's just a tool in my hands. 
It's just a stick I'm using to achieve my purposes. So perhaps for you and me, I wonder the question is, do you, I feel nervous asking this even of myself, do you have a quarrel with the Lord? You got that wrong, God. You just got that wrong. Your plans suck. Now let me clarify a little bit here. I, I think biblically you'd have to say there's a difference between quarreling with the Lord here, rebuked, and asking, wrestling with him. Habakkuk could say, how long, Lord? Why, Lord? Many of the psalmists would say, why, Lord? Why us? Why me? When will this end, Lord? Jeremiah, as many will know, can lament and say, this is terrible. And yet all those are, help me understand, Lord. Um, I'm struggling here, Lord. I'm still talking to you. I'm, I, I know who you are. I just don't get what you're doing. Asking, wrestling with him is encouraged biblically. Quarreling, what are you doing? You got it wrong. I know better than you. Yeah, not so good. That is what is being challenged here. Argumentative anger. You're useless at running the world, Lord. What have you ever made, God? You, you're whatever. That's us. Faith, by contrast, is... Lord, I'm finding it hard, but I've got nowhere else to go but you. Help me understand. Keep me going. One commentator, I was really got this, he said, oh, it's a bit like Aslan, isn't it? His ways are mysterious to understand. Sometimes I thought, yes, there are plenty of places you can turn to C.S. Lewis's Narnia novels and think of that. And then I read a bit of The Silver Chair, uh, whatever it is, books, whatever it is, four or five. And anyway, near the, near the beginning, but Jill, the character, Jill Pole has followed her friend, sort of friend, Eustace, in, in, into Narnia, and she's there in a wood, and she's desperately thirsty, so, <gasps> dying of thirst, and <gasps> sees a stream, brilliant, and it's a lovely stream, and sees, do you know this bit? Um, uh, sees a stream, and oh, sort of, oh, oh brilliant stream, and then uh, sees between her and the stream a lion. Very big lion, Aslan. Oh. Um, and Aslan looks up, but she's always awake, and she's terrified. And then he says, are you thirsty? And I, I can't remember, Lewis says, it's a golden voice. She's terrified, but in a slightly different way. Now she's heard him speak. Uh, yes, I'm thirsty. Well, come and drink. Would you mind going elsewhere? She says, <laughs> he just growls at her. Do you promise not to harm me? No. Oh, I suppose I'll have to find another stream. There is no other stream. You have to drink from this one. Oh. And, um, the narrative goes, it was the worst thing Jill had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream. She knelt down, began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Oh, I, I find 
this a bit overwhelming, Lord. You create disaster. You're quite scary at times, Lord. There's nowhere else to go. And when you come to me, you'll find here is what you need. <laughs> Here's the, I guess, water of life is the analogy. Chapter 45, verse 7, you, you create disaster as well as prosperity. I find that hard, Lord. Can you do it another way, Lord? No. This is how it is. But come, you're finding me what you need. I'll save you in a shocking way. Don't you quarrel with me, says the Lord. For every knee will eventually bow. 14 to the end of the chapter. This is what the Lord says. Uh, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and all those tall Sabaeans, they'll come over to you. They'll be yours. They'll trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They'll bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. The Egyptians back then, they're now the modern day Egyptians. And uh, these others, uh, Ethiopians, Eritreans, I guess now, where, where they would be uh, geographically now. Um, they'll all bow the knee. They may be initially a bit confused. They may say, verse 15, this is God of yours, Israel. Truly, he's a God who's been hiding himself. To which the Lord says, no. Verse 19, I've not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I've not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what's right. It's recurrent. Is God hiding himself? No, he speaks. He speaks. He speaks six times in those two verses, 18, 19. He speaks. That's how you know what he's like. He speaks. And all the other nations will eventually work this out, Israel. I speak. They'll hear and they'll discern there is no other. Have you heard that throughout this drumbeat, throughout the whole reading? There is no other. There is no other. So the implication is very simple. It's verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. In the end, the Bible is absolutely unapologetic. There is no other God apart from the God of Israel. There is no other Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no other plan at work in the universe bar His. So you have a choice. You say, whoa. And you turn to him and are saved. Well, you throw the whole Bible away. <laughs> but what you can't do is say, yes, I quite like the Bible, and I quite like religion, and there's lots of gods. You can't do that. Because the unrelenting message is, there's one God. You see most clearly when he comes down in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way you can know him is if you turn to him. Trust that Jesus has died in your place, risen so you can live forever. There's no other way. It's pretty binary. And the scriptures are absolutely unapologetic on that point. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved. Verse 23, for by myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered all in, in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, Every tongue will swear. They'll say of me and the Lord alone is our deliverance and strength. All of rage against him will come and be put to shame. 
But the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord. They'll find their boast in him. It's only him. No other God that could tell you what's going to happen in the future centuries in advance. There's no other God who saves like him. And of course, the New Testament picked these verses up in Philippians chapter 2. And Paul will declare, or being found in appearance of a man, the Lord Jesus, he humbled himself, he became obedient to death, death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Isaiah 45, every knee will bow to Jesus, the New Testament says. That is the name. And acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no other. There is no other. Okay, what do we do with this? So the Lord says, I, I create prosperity, I create disaster. It's all in my hands. Yeah, I'm the one who's going to raise up this figure for Israel who saves. I, I predicted it all in advance. <laughs> what do we do with this today, you and me? Let me suggest a couple of things. The first I think we're meant to take away from Isaiah 45 is confidence that God plans. Confidence in God's plans. I said, when Isaiah wrote this around 700 BC, everyone would have thought, you know, whatever, we're fine. 115, later, 115 years later, when Babylon comes and smashes them, this would have been a bit more interesting. Oh, we've, remember Isaiah said we'd go into, where's that scroll of his? Let's, you know, oh, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he said this would happen. Another 40, 50 years later, Oh, there's this new guy, new army coming from Persia in the north. Oh, yeah, what, what's the guy in charge of it called? Cyrus. That's a bit freaky. Like, as I wrote about this 150-odd years ago. Wow. God does predict the future, and his promises come true. And we're meant to take away from this confidence in that. It's an explicit place in the Bible where God ties his authority to his ability to predict the future. You see it, we've seen it throughout the section, really, 40 to 48, but here in verse 21, who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Me, because there is no other. But of course, you could say all the promises of the Old Testament of what the Messiah would do, of where he'd be born and where he'd live and what he'd achieve and where he'd die, and well, they're all fulfilled in Jesus. You know, I meant to read this and think, yeah, okay, God works in deeply surprising ways to, to you and me. He uses surprising sticks to achieve his purposes, but his promises always come true. You can trust him. He really is in charge of history. That would be the first, I think, confidence in God's plan, his rule over history, but then to push it a little further, secondly, confidence in God's plans for you, not just over history, but for you. I find 45 verse 7, a stark verse. This, I mean, the Bible says it in many other ways, in many other places, but that's a stark verse. I create disaster. Again, 
there's nuance you'd want to add to that, human responsibility, but it's all within his hands. But of course, the disasters to you and me, the Lord uses them, they always come with a purpose. So this creator who put mankind on the earth, who stretched out the heavens with his hands, he experienced disaster in coming down in the Lord Jesus Christ, uniting himself with human flesh, being killed by his creation, is disaster. And yet through it, he achieves the greatest possible good. Through that, verse 8 language, salvation rains down across London and Kenya and Cush and the Sabaeans and Egypt because of that salvation, because of that work, because of that disaster that befell the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of you and I even now, we, we, we read, God says to you and me, yeah, you are a pot. You are a clay pot. But the Christian knows, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul would say, you're a fragile clay pot, but treasures within you because God dwells within you by his spirit. You're a feeble clay pot, but golly, you're loved. So what are we to do with this? Well, whatever season you're in, whether it feels like prosperity at the moment or disaster, you're in the Lord's hands. He is the one who has created both and is using them to achieve his purposes. That is a hard truth. But where else do you go? I know that he's achieving good through them. Know that the disaster of today, you'll experience, you'll understand as the triumph tomorrow. But it is all in his hands. That's what he wants you to know. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we'd hear these verses rightly. We have to know you as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we have to know that in the Lord Jesus there is one who has experienced disaster and conquered it and to whom one day every knee will bow. We have to know that it's this, that you are our God and our Father, that the one who tells us we can't quarrel still invites us to pray and ask our questions, even as we struggle at times to trust your plans. But Father, help us to know that the, the worst of this world is not outside of your control. You are the Lord. There is no other, and we can trust you, the one who knows the future. Help us do so in Jesus' name. Amen.